Good morning, Orchard people, and welcome to the message for this Sunday. I'm out here in front of our building, just like we have our online service, but you may be sitting at home having the uh, online sermon right into your living room. Whatever. We're so glad you're here. And today, we're going to look at bad news and good news. You've heard the old joke, right? The uh, doctor calls a patient, calls a gentleman and says, I've got good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? He said, well, I want the good news first. The doctor says, you've got 24 hours to live. Oh, what's the bad news? The doctor said, I was supposed to call you yesterday. Good news, bad news. Today we're getting the bad news first. In fact, you know the before and after pictures, the uh, one on the left, before is always worse. Today, in this passage, as we start out, Paul is going to make that before after picture. The before is a corpse. So let's start by uh, thinking about this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in Ephesus. He was there for three years and he saw so many of them come to trust in Jesus Christ. He loved these people and he wanted them to have a firm foundation for their faith. And so he wrote this letter to them after uh, maybe seven or eight years he had been with them in person. We're going to read from chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature objects deserving wrath wow that's pretty tough he's speaking to christians and he states that they were dead in their transgressions and sins not dead physically but dead spiritually and that truth applies to wherever we are whenever we are all over the world before christ spiritually dead you know what dead is if you've unfortunately had uh, suffered the death of a loved one you know you know when the life is gone and there's nothing there just the body unresponsive separated from you no contact no response dead and that's what it was like to be spiritually dead unresponsive to God separated from God Jesus confirmed this in John 3 3 when he said I tell you the truth to Nicodemus no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they're born again he goes on to say that what's born of the flesh is flesh what's born of the spirit it takes the spirit to birth spiritual life so how can this be how can a person be spiritually dead I want to give you a brief thumbnail sketch of um, a biblical overview worldview of origin and condition and how things are now. You see, God's Word tells us that God created the heavens and the earth. And the crown of His creation, He made humans in His image. Now, in His image doesn't mean physically, but it means that in His image, He made humans who were capable of thought, reasoning, emotion, planning, communicating, uh, in brief, 
capable of relationship. And God made humans, He made you and me, with a desire to have a relationship with us. But He gave us free will. And the first, first people that He made utilized that free will to betray God and to seek from the world He made what they wanted rather than to seek it from the Creator. And God said when that happened, they would die. Not physically, but spiritually. And so today, people are alive physically, functioning emotionally, and yet spiritually dead. But it's important you understand God's image is still visible in our human nature, in every person. It's fractured. It's not what it was. But it's still there, and every person is therefore uh, of infinite worth, value, all of us. As it says, we're created equal. And so the value of a human, even though spiritually dead, is of infinite worth to God. Spiritually dead. Think, think of zombies. <laughs> How zombies are walking around with something missing, obviously. And a zombie uh, is not fully human but is a caricature. Paul's describing here spiritual death. It's like spiritual zombies. Dead and incapable of changing their condition, um, incapable of coming to life, stuck in spiritual death. And like that zombie life, huh, zombie dead life, uh, engaged in transgressions and sin. Like Adam and Eve, uh, turning away from God. Now Eve, uh, took the bait, took the fruit, in order to hopefully gain uh, status and prestige equal with God above her husband. And after she did that, her husband ate the fruit, not the ate the, the fruit, so he wouldn't lose his wife. So they were seeking in the created order what only the Creator can provide for us. You see, we all have basic human needs. We want to be happy. We want to be loved, uh, valuable, of worth, secure. We want to be accepted and have a degree of significance. That's what we're looking for. And so we invest our human resources trying to gain that or earn that performance-based by what we do or how we appear. We try to gain that from the world, to seek from others and from the creation what God primarily wants to provide for us. And Paul uses the word here. He says we're motivated by our flesh. It's, it's, it's uh, sinful nature. And I think a way to say it is just a selfish, self-centeredness. When a person operates uh, with their own best interests first and foremost, um, trying to get their needs satisfied, uh, that is thoughts and feelings, emotions, behavior, trying to get what I want and avoid what I don't want. And you can see how this easily uh, transgresses the commandments. Um, I covet. The, the word the Bible uses, I want what I don't have, what you've got, and so I cheat you, I steal it from you, I kill you to get it. I lie to protect myself, I have uh, extramarital sex because of a desire for love and value. So we just knock those over like ten pins, and we've violated God's commandments and His righteousness just by operating like this, spiritually dead, seeking our needs to be met from the world. And it doesn't take robbing stores or selling drugs to kids to sin. You see, if you have put your needs in front of the well-being and welfare of others and made decisions or behavior or words um, 
for your own self-interest, disregarding that of others, you sin. And, and we may say, I'm not so bad. But yet, you can remember those decisions that you made when you put yourself before others. Sinning is something every day. It's not just something that happens uh, from time to time or when you deliberately fail. Uh, and then he goes on in, in verse 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is not work in those who are disobedient. It gets really worse. He's saying the way you conducted your dead lives, in that process you followed the ways of the world, the way that spiritually dead people do things. In other words, trying to earn, perform, uh, look in a way that's acceptable to other people, earn the value. And when we feel like our performance or our appearance has gained acceptance or value or worth, we feel up. But when we don't, we feel down. But it gets even worse. He says not only are we following the ways of the world, but he says this, we're following the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit now at work in those who are disobedient to God. You see, Paul later identifies this ruler of the kingdom of the air as the devil. So it's not enough that we want what we can't have. We cheat, steal, kill to get it. But now we've got another motivator. It's like putting a person's self-centeredness on steroids. So a thought crosses your mind. Wouldn't you like to have that? The one you have really isn't as good. So we do things we shouldn't be doing to get what we don't need. Or you're a loser. So we try to do things to prove we're not a loser or we medicate ourselves so that we don't feel so bad about our status or situation. And we're like all the time, I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, being spiritually dead, hurting others, getting my way, being influenced by the devil. Um, I often have people tell me, well, Doug, I'm not perfect. Well, you've proven the case then because the standard of excellence is the righteousness of God. And we've all failed that. I'm not so bad. We say, I'm not so bad. So you're somewhere between I'm not perfect and I'm not so bad. And we're in that situation Paul describes here. And then he goes on in verse 3. It gets worse. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Gratifying the desires of our self-centeredness, following its desires trying to accomplish what we want. And you don't have to think about your worst decisions as an illustration here. We do things every day where we put ourselves first. We have a thought, a desire morphs into a behavior, words, craving. We do what we, what we have to to get at. We're riding the craving train. Don't do it. But Paul is describing the whole situation here. Spiritually dead, transgressing God's righteous law, sinning, acting like everybody else, taking cues from Satan, self-centeredness propelling me to get what I want, my needs met in any way I can. And we still say I'm not so bad. And that's because we're comparing ourselves to other spiritually dead people who are operating according to the ways of the world, doing what they can for their happiness and their acceptance. And we look around and I'm not as bad as this one, not so bad as that one. And we, so we don't think, we don't have an accurate assessment 
of the way things are within us that Paul gives us here. Sometimes we say, well, I'm not so bad, like it's grading on a curve. No, there's an absolute standard, God's standard. The way he made the world so precise and majestic, and he made us as humans to operate in a way. His original design intention was that we would live righteously and be in a loving relationship with him. But now it gets really bad. Like the rest of the people, we were by nature deserving of wrath because of our condition, dead in transgressions, sinning, betraying God, following the ways of the world, following Satan. There's no hope. And now we've incurred the wrath of God. Now, God is holy and he can't tolerate sin. Now, that doesn't mean that he's afraid of sin. Like, like a mouse comes into the kitchen, you jump on a chair, eek a mouse. No, it's not that at all. God's holiness is so powerful and so bright and pure that when sin or a sinful person would come into his presence, vaporized, melted down. Sin doesn't stand a chance in his presence and he wants us in his presence. And so we're down here in this pit, in this grave because of our condition, because of our behavior, and, 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 and because of all that, we are, by nature, objects of wrath. Take a second. Take a second and ponder that. We don't like to admit it or deal with it. But we are spiritually dead, those without Christ. That's the way we were objects of wrath because if we don't grasp if we don't grasp the depth of this situation we'll miss out on the uh, enormity of the positive by nature object of wrath but wait a second in verse 4 it says but God I love that but God bad situation things aren't going right we're helpless but God because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions it's by grace you have been saved but God spiritually dead separated from God and separated from his original attention of being in relationship with him but because of his grace and richness of mercy, he's made us alive in Christ. Born again, your spirit was dead. But when the Holy Spirit entered your heart because of your faith in Christ and Jesus, that he died on the cross for you, forgiving you of your sins, rose from the dead. Like Daniel last week preached on what happened, the power that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe the power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the power, but it's God's love and mercy and the power to raise us from spiritual death, raised up with Christ. Think about that. Not just resurrected, but resurrected with Christ. I don't know exactly all that means, but there's a picture of it in baptism. And when someone is a believer and, they, and they're baptized, 
they stand there and declare their faith in Jesus. And then they are lowered down under the water, depicting Jesus' death, and also depicting their own spiritual death. That was their condition. And then they're raised up, depicting Jesus' resurrection and their resurrection to new life in Christ. I can't watch a baptism without getting a lump in my throat because of its eternal significance and very personal significance for that person. And then uh, you, as we, we think through this and, and it sort of rolls off because we're so familiar with it, but 2,000 years ago, there was not a concept of a loving God. Uh, gods were uh, frivolous and they would uh, punish people at, at whim. And then we've got the revelation in these passages of who God is. You can, you can search the source documents of every major religion, every minor religion, every philosophy, every, every system, and you will not find the description or reality of a God as described here. God is love. Active in love, resentless, re, what do you call it? Relentless in his love, seeking us, coming for us. God is holy, perfect, righteous, precise in his righteousness. God is full of mercy, overflowing with mercy, not willing that any would perish. He extended forgiveness, paid for by Christ Jesus. He takes personal insults betrayal, our fist in his face, and he keeps coming to us, for us, with his mercy. God is the epitome of grace. We're saved by his grace. If mercy is not getting what we do deserve, grace is getting what we don't deserve, life and his love. And he's powerful, creating a majestic universe breathtaking in scope. Do you see the pictures on uh, social media of the, uh, of the rainbows the other night? Wow. I mean, man, magnificent. He's majestic. He's powerful, all powerful. And yet he stoops in his grace and mercy to reach and bring life to us. By his grace, you've been saved. And the word saved in the Greek, uh, hang on for this uh, grammar lesson. It's a past participle mid-voice paraphrastic verb and what it means is is that the action happened to you it's past tense it act it happened at the time you believed in Jesus Christ but it also the results continue throughout the future wow it's a pretty incredible word there you were saved but wait there's more and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Wow. Not just raised from death. This is after that resurrection, but raised up into the heavenly realms with Christ and seated in Christ Jesus. Past tense, these things have happened. Now this is spiritual truth that just rocks our world. That somehow, 
because of God's love and grace and kindness, we are seated in the heavenlies with Him. Now, we're raised from the spiritual death to life. And so here on the earth, you've got your spiritual life. You're now plugged in. You are empowered to live in such a way that you don't have to live in the transgressions and sins. You don't have to follow the ways of the world. You don't have to, to follow the leading of Satan. You don't have to um, go around trying to get your value and worth from the world. You're free from all that. You're empowered to love God and love people on this planet. And at the, at the end of your life on the planet, you will be in heaven completely and totally. But there's more. While you live your life on earth spiritually alive, there's part of you. I don't even understand how this works. But because some of these things we don't understand, this is an opportunity for us to meditate and ask God, God, make this real to me. Help me experience the truth of your word that somehow, when I was born again, I went straight in the heavenly realms to be seated with Christ. And there you are, probably relieved and grateful. And yet it goes on to say, this is, this is why we're there. Front row, center seat, to receive and see God's demonstration, it says, of His incomparable riches of grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Can you, can you imagine what it would be like to be seated safe in the heavenlies, in the splendor, in Christ, and God just wave after wave demonstrating and showing you, loving you with His grace and His kindness? And another thing, I have a lot of people that say, well, I'm okay with God. It's just the Jesus I'm not really... Uh, comfortable or familiar with I would say you better get comfortable with Jesus because it says here in the word that you were raised from the dead in Christ raised up to heavenly realms in Christ seated with Christ Jesus and you're the object of God's grace and kindness in Christ Jesus <laughs> say his name aloud Jesus Christ bought your forgiveness and your spiritual life goes on in verse 8 to say it's by grace you've been saved through faith this is not even of yourselves it's a gift of God not of your work so nobody can brag about it on and on with this grace um, this is getting what we don't deserve saved by grace through faith and that faith is even a gift from God and so God is so <laughs> determined to have a relationship with you. He did all the work on his part and your part, and he gave you faith that you needed to trust in Jesus as a gift. You see, every religion in the world is performance-based. You gotta earn it. You gotta do good works, do enough stuff so God will like you and give you a chance in the next life, perhaps. But in Christ, the pressure's off. You don't have to earn God's favor. You can't. And God doesn't love you for the good you've done, but because of the good that Jesus has done. Performance-based religious people, you can tell them by their guilt when they fall short, and you can tell them by their arrogant judgmentalism 
for other people. But you see, we can't brag because we really had nothing to do with our salvation, our spiritual life. And then, verse 10, here's the crowning glory. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, back to earth. On this planet, there's something of you in the heavenly realm, but you're living now spiritually alive. And Paul says that we are God's handiwork. Now, the Greek word there is poema, which means poem or a work of art, like a beautiful soaring symphony, more beautiful than a sunset. You are God's handiwork, a work of art. Turn to the person there on the couch with you right now and say, you know, you are a beautiful work of God's art. <laughs> because we are. He has given us life and given us life to work in us and for us. Not to gain God's favor, but because of God's favor. You see, we work from God's favor, not for God's favor. But wait, there's even more. I know you're getting tired of this. It's like a a cable TV commercial at night. There's more, wait, and there is. These aren't works that you have to figure out. These are works that God has custom prepared for you in advance. Now the Greek word for do here, which remember, uh, he's, he's, create, he's created you and prepared works in advance for you to do. The word for do there is not uh, what you would think. In the Greek, it is that word uh, uh, for peripataste. And it was used in verse 2 to talk about how we used to live in the world and among the world. You can think of it as that word uh, perambulate, which means to kind of walk around at least. Before, when we were spiritually dead, we were perambulating in sin transgression. But now we are perambulating, walking around in those works that God prepared for us. Now, that doesn't mean those works are necessarily going to a foreign country as a missionary or feeding thousands of people. I mean, it could be for some and maybe for you someday, but those works are right in front of you. As you walk around during your day, you just look for the works God's prepared for you. And as you, as you look through your day, look for those ways that he's prepared for you to be a source of joy and peace and love and light in this world as you love God and love people. So what could that be? As an employee, you can power up to be the best employee that your boss has ever had. Best attitude, best performance. As an employer, power up to be the best employer that any of your people that work for you have ever had. Generous, understanding, motivating, kind and generous. Are you a husband, a wife? Power up to love and serve each other with kindness and grace. Too often, those in a marriage relationship speak more words of correction and criticism. What if you were to use your words of kindness and grace to serve your mate? Are you a child, a parent, a grandparent, a grandchild, uh, a friend, whatever it may be, embedded in your life are those works that God has prepared 
for you and prepare you for that work. His grace and favor for you to shed and share with other people. So in this passage, Paul has torn it down, deconstructed it to the grave, spiritually dead, characterized by transgression and sin, mimicking the world, trying to gain our acceptance by performance or appearance, following the ways of the devil. Uh, he describes it pretty well. Our self-centeredness, uh, empowered by sometimes Satan's uh, direction or temptation to get what we want and people are hurt and by nature object of wrath but God you see those words aren't just to make you feel bad they're to make you feel grateful but God rich in mercy didn't give up on us by his mercy and Jesus death on the cross and by his resurrection and by his grace God has forgiven us and restored us to a relationship with himself he's empowered us to live a supernatural life here on this planet spiritually empowered somehow to have a perspective and a secure seating in heaven right now and then to know after this life we'll be with him forever let me pray for you and uh, as you have perhaps with you there the, the uh, bread and the cup that remind us of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, when you partake of that, when you eat the bread and drink of the cup, remember it happened to bring you alive spiritually, to seat you with Jesus in the heavenlies and to empower your living here every day. Let me pray. Lord God, what a beautiful day. Thank you so much for our life for our spiritual life. Thank you so much for what you did for us, in us, and what you want to do through us. For your grace and kindness, we receive it gratefully, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, 